Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Hello, and on today's episode of Afternoon Light, I am talking to Lord Jonathan Sumption. And Jonathan is a historian and former Justice of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. Since he retired from the court in 2018, Jonathan has become a prominent commentator on contemporary issues, particularly in relation to the decline of democracy and the COVID-19 pandemic. And he's currently in Australia and here in Melbourne as a guest of the Robert Menzies Institute. So welcome to Melbourne, to Australia and to the Afternoon Light podcast, Jonathan. I'm glad to be here. It's wonderful to have you here. We have been anticipating your visit for many, many months and it is great to have you here in the old quad at the University of Melbourne. And I definitely want to get on to the topic of history because, of course, you trained as a historian, not a lawyer, although you spent most of your career as a barrister. But I wanted to start off, we're here in Melbourne, the most locked down city in the world, give or take, and you were one of the very few voices who raised concerns about lockdowns and the COVID-19 measures that were being imposed by various governments around the world. Of course, in your experience, the UK government. I note that you called these measures a monument of collective hysteria and governmental folly. Why do you think our governments here in Australia, but of course your experiences of the UK government, why did they end up taking such an illiberal response to COVID-19? I think that they did it largely by popular demand. And that's really where the problem lies. Democratic governments can behave in a very despotic way if people are sufficiently frightened. And they were in this case. I think they were more frightened than they needed to be. The fact is that COVID-19, although undoubtedly a serious pathogen, was highly selective. It primarily attacked vulnerable categories, particularly the old and people suffering from an identified number, about 15 well-established illnesses, mostly involved to the respiratory system. It was therefore relatively easy disease to deal with on a selective basis targeting the people who really needed protection and leaving the great majority of the population to look after themselves and those around them by behaving in a sensible and responsible fashion. I never thought that there was any good reason for supposing that they wouldn't actually behave in a sensible and responsible fashion if left to make their own judgments. And it seems to me that the usurpation of their judgments by the state a serious and unnecessary step. The collateral costs of it have proved to be catastrophic. I can only talk with any authority about the situation in the UK, but I'd be surprised if it was radically different in Australia. The educational consequences, particularly for the more challenged pupils of closing schools, were not only catastrophic, but are likely to have very, very long-term effects on the children in question. The impact on other health problems, notably heart disease, dementia and cancer, has been negative and very damaging. The economic consequence of paying people for up to 18 months, in the case of the United Kingdom, not to work, has been a significant factor in the current financial difficulties which the UK is labouring under. Again, I can't speak with authority for Australia, but the whole exercise must have been prodigiously expensive. No point do governments appear 
to have drawn up anything like a cost-benefit analysis to weigh the advantages against the disadvantages. I think that it was not an experiment worth trying. And although those responsible will never admit this, I don't suppose that this is going to happen again for the foreseeable future. We've had pandemics in the past. And in fact, when we've been doing some research here on the 1954 Royal Tour to Australia, there was a polio pandemic in parts of Australia. So Australia is used to pandemics. The UK is used to pandemics. Okay, in my recent memory, we haven't had anything major, my living memory. But in the past, the response wasn't wholesale lockdown. It wasn't so draconian. What was it about popular demand and our culture in the West that led to governments imposing these restrictions and the public accepting it? Because that was something I found striking is that in my experience here in Melbourne, there was a tiny bit of opposition, but there was almost no opposition. There was a sense of resignation and acceptance that this had to be done. Humanity has had to live with epidemic disease, varying degrees of seriousness from the beginning of time. It is simply not true that COVID-19 was an altogether exceptional event. Of course, it was a serious event, but there have been other pandemics. Hong Kong and Asian flu epidemics of the late 50s and late 60s were comparable events, not in terms of the death toll, which was not as great as COVID-19, but in terms of the potential danger. Spanish flu epidemic, which followed the First World War, was considerably more serious than COVID-19. It killed an estimated 200,000 people in the United Kingdom alone and several million worldwide. In that epidemic, governments did not adopt these drastic measures. In the United States, uniquely, the government did impose, or state governments, because it's a state responsibility, did impose some relatively mild measures, isolation of known cases, closure of mass events, and in some places, theatres and schools and so on, but nothing like a complete lockdown. What has changed? I think that what has changed is that expectations of the state have increased enormously in the century between those two events. People are very reluctant to accept that there's often a limit to what the state can achieve, and certainly a limit to what it can achieve without causing really serious collateral problems, often unanticipated ones. People demand that the state provide a measure of security, which is probably unrealistic. And because they don't accept that this is beyond the power of the state, and because they are frightened, they entrust the state with the kind of powers which, in my view, no democracy should really tolerate. I would accept that there must be some circumstances in which these kind of powers are necessary and appropriate, but only in very much more serious cases than COVID-19. I think this was, as I said some months ago, a monument of collective hysteria and governmental folly. And I think that over the years, as we recover our intellectual balance, it will become increasingly obvious that this was so. It was interesting here in Australia to see how governments, I mean, we have federal system, of course, with state and federal governments, and because it was a health issue and health is a power of the states, a lot of the decisions were left to the state governments, which added a complexity that obviously didn't have in the UK. Similar in the United States. Exactly. But what was interesting is that state governments here in Victoria would roll over state of emergency declaration, which gave the executive rather than the legislature huge powers 
to just determine what was allowed and what wasn't, what was legal, what wasn't. The balance of power between the legislature and executive is a key part of our democracy and a good functioning democracy. And it did shift very much in favour of the executive. How do you think that can recover? And do you think that's a real danger for democracy? I think that there is a real danger in allowing the executive unlimited coercive powers. In the UK, this ought not to have happened without really close legislative supervision. We have an Emergency Powers Act called the Civil Contingencies Act, which allows the government to do absolutely anything that the legislature can do, which means absolutely anything. But the condition is that they need to go back to the legislature every 30 days to ensure that they have consent for its continuance. The legislature can intervene at any moment with amendments or indeed just abrogating the rules. The legislature has to approve before they are brought into force or in exceptionally urgent cases within seven days thereafter. It has to be recalled if it's necessary to satisfy these requirements. Now that is a sensible and intelligent way of dealing with emergency powers. In the UK, the government evaded these by using an act which was never designed for emergencies on that scale. It was designed to confer on ministers some of the powers in relation to identified individual infected persons or premises that were conferred on magistrates. The use of this act was, in my view, an abuse, which unfortunately the courts, who are quite sensitive to public opinion, were not brave enough to correct. I think that's a serious failing of our constitution. I cannot say whether the framework was similar in Australia, but I wouldn't be surprised. Well, at some point, the parliament in Victoria was just shut down and didn't hold any sittings because of the COVID pandemic. So we basically were without a democracy in Victoria. Yes. And wasn't so bad at a federal level. But of course, as I said, we were pretty much run by the states. In the state of South Australia, when there's a state of emergency for a health emergency, the powers basically fall to the police commissioner and the chief health officer. So their state seemed to be run by them. That is very unfortunate. Yes. It may well be lawful, but it is completely contrary to any kind of democratic accountability. And the greater the emergency, the more serious the powers that the state is exercising, the more vital it is that there should be tight legislative supervision. I discovered, I hadn't known before, when I gave evidence to a committee of the Irish Parliament during the pandemic, that under the Irish Constitution, not only can Parliament not be told to go away for a short time because they're getting in the way, but every member of Parliament has a right and obligation to be present in the chamber during parliamentary business. Well, the legislators to whom I was giving evidence, some of them regarded this as an unfortunate impediment to effective action against the pandemic, I had to say to them, I don't think you realise how lucky you are. (laughs) So we're now coming out of the pandemic. Well, although the medical experts will say we never will be, it'll live with us forevermore. Okay, we get used to it. Well, that's in a way a good thing. Because if it's going to be with us forevermore, there is no point, and it is even more obviously inappropriate, to start restricting people's ability to live their lives. Absolutely. It's often said we shouldn't let a good crisis go to waste. What are the lessons to be learned, do you think, from the last two and a half years for democracies particularly? Well, one lesson, certainly in the UK, is that we have to get emergency powers sorted out. The courts have unfortunately declined to perform that function in the UK. I think it's up to Parliament to do so. 
The big problem is that the UK Parliament, like I think the Australian Federal Parliament, is not the master of its own agenda. The government essentially controls the parliamentary agenda. Governments are never keen on attempts to clip their wings or curtail their powers. No, and of course not. <laughs> therefore, it will take a seismic event to persuade them to do so. In the UK, and I think in Australia, the anti-COVID measures adopted were bipartisan measures. Indeed, in the UK, the opposition was even more enthusiastic for them than the government, which was saying quite a lot. So I don't hold out much hope of this changing, but I certainly think that it should. Well, agreed. It seems to me, though, that the public is still largely approving of how the government handled yes. the pandemic. I mean, I can speak from the Australian experience, of course. Yes, I mean, I've seen the polling evidence relating to Australia. Mm. The percentage was well into the 80s of approval, mm. higher than it was in the UK, and even higher levels of approval in Australia for the course adopted by New Zealand, which I think will prove to have been extremely damaging financially and economically. Jacinta Ardern's star is not quite as bright now as it was. And I think that there is a growing realisation, even in New Zealand, that there was a certain amount of overreaction. No. But what you have to remember about both Australia and New Zealand is that they had very considerable advantages. First of all, they have smaller populations than most European countries. Secondly, the age distribution of the population is very different. Mm. The average and median ages of the population of Australia is lower than it is in almost every European country, and certainly lower than the United Kingdom. Thirdly, the Australia and New Zealand are both geographically remote, which meant both that the pandemic hit them later and that it was easier to deal with it by shutting down entry to the country almost completely. That was never an option that was open to European countries and certainly not to the UK, which is critically dependent for a large number of things on international contacts in a way that is not as true of Australia. We had a controversy here in Australia where Australian citizens could not even return to their own country. Yes, I'm aware of that. That was not a mistake that European countries made. And in my view, it was contrary to international law, because one of the principles of international law is that you cannot, by refusing to admit your own citizens to their national territory, effectively foist them on other countries who may or may not want them. Why is it that judges decline to rule in, if you say, for example, Australian citizens stuck in India last year who were not able to return to Australia, there was a sort of a ban on people resident in India or present in India returning to Australia because there was an outbreak of one of the variants, I think it was the Delta variant at that time. Why do you think people weren't going to courts to fight this out? Because we saw actually in the Australian Open at the beginning of this year a very, very neat and efficient way of the court system dealing with an issue over the tennis player mm-hmm. Novak Djokovic, who was allowed to enter but then denied entry into Australia and then there was a kerfuffle over whether the minister had given Djokovic a visa or not. Anyway, the courts dealt within days. It was in terms of the efficiency of the courts being able to deal with a, a crisis situation, they did, whereas in this situation we heard nothing. 
Well, I think there was ever any problem about the capacity of the courts to deal promptly with these issues. But the problem is the issues themselves. The Djokovic case was a rather special case because Djokovic had been given certain assurances by representatives of the federal government before Mm. he arrived. And he won the initial judicial review for that reason. But of course, that did not prevent the government from then making a new exclusion order after that, which they duly did. And so he had to leave. That was a classic example of the use of judicial review to restrain an abuse of power, the government effectively going back on its word. The issue would have been completely different if the question had been the lawfulness of excluding people from their own home territory. Now, I am not an Australian constitutional lawyer, although there are certain similarities between the UK and the Australian system. They're both common law systems with broadly similar principles of public law. But Australia does not have a charter of fundamental rights of the sort that we have or that Canada has or that in its constitution the United States has. And that essentially means that anything which is valid law is absolutely unimpeachable. So unless there was a technical defect in the orders under which these exclusions were made, I think it would have been extremely difficult to challenge it. It's one thing to challenge the law. It's another thing to challenge the way that the government exercises powers under the law. And the problem about challenging the exclusion of nationals from their own territory would have been that, as I understand it, this was actually included in lawful instruments. On the Bill of Rights, Robert Menzies was an opponent of codified Bill of Rights like they have in the United States. And there were proposals from time to time to amend the Australian Constitution to include such a Bill of Rights. And he saw it unnecessary because he believed that in a proper functioning democracy like Australia, it should be the parliament and the people through the parliament who decide what rights and freedoms should exist, not some sort of codified, ossified set of laws. What, in your view, do you think of that? How, well, I basically, how do we- I share Robert Menzies' view about this, although I think that it very much depends on what kind of powers the courts are exercising. I agree with the view which I take it that he took, that it is not the function of the courts in a democracy to decide questions of legislative principle. Their function is essentially to determine the meaning, as a natural use of words against its background, of the laws that Parliament has already made. So to that extent, I entirely agree with him. On the other hand, I do not see why there should not be fundamental rights which the federal parliament or the state parliaments legislate into existence, provided that they are sufficiently precisely defined. What I object to is the idea that the courts can take some very loosely defined right and make of it whatever they wish, which may be a great deal more than Parliament would have made of it if they had been consulted. That is essentially the problem that both the United States and the United Kingdom have got. In the case of the United States, it is because the rights that are protected by the Constitution are expressed in extremely general terms Mm. and are capable of almost infinite development in accordance with what are essentially the political preferences of the judges, and in particular the judges of the US Supreme Court. In the United Kingdom, the problem is that the ultimate arbiter of the meaning of the Human Rights Convention that we have adopted, the European Human Rights Convention, is a matter for the Human Rights Court in Strasbourg, which has an extremely inventive approach to these provisions. It's no more inventive than that of the Supreme Court has been in the last 60 years, but it is pretty bold. 
It essentially consists of expanding the scope of the convention rules by a process of extrapolation into any area which it is felt was in keeping with the general spirit underlying the convention itself. Now, that is not a respectable way of interpreting legislative instruments in UK law or, I believe, in Australian law. And I think that you would be wise to avoid conferring on the courts, either domestically or internationally, powers of that kind, because they are essentially legislative powers and they ought to be reserved to legislators. Judges are not legislators. As a foreigner to the UK, observing the Brexit debate and then referendum, and I know you had your strong views as a Remainer on that. Well, they weren't as strong as all that. I mean, I was a Remainer and I still am. I think yeah. that it was a, an unwise thing to do. But I've always sought to understand the reason why a narrow majority of my fellow citizens thought differently. So observing from afar, it seemed that a lot of these decisions by the European Court of Human Rights were of great concern to some Britons, potentially the majority of Britons. I don't think that was a factor in the referendum. Right. Remember that the Human Rights Convention and the Human Rights Court are nothing to do with the European Union. Right. But that sense that Europe was telling Britain what to do, yes. that was certainly one of the concerns. That was a major factor. In fact, yeah. I think it was the major factor. Mm. There have been all sorts of more or less patronising explanations. The British people have been accused of xenophobia, of gullibility and succumbing to lies, of post-imperial nostalgia and all sorts of nonsense like that. These are very comforting illusions for those who strongly believe in the European Union because they involve explanations which do not put the blame on anybody other than the British electorate. I think that the blame is fairly evenly distributed there's a great deal that is extremely unattractive about the European Union. The problem about this is that it's an issue on which nobody seems to be prepared to weigh pluses against minuses. They say, the European Union is a dreadful outfit, therefore we must leave, or the European Union is an extraordinarily splendid outfit, therefore we must stay. The truth may well be that neither of those propositions is correct. The truth may be, in fact, I'm sure that it is, that the European Union is a thoroughly defective outfit, but that we should still remain in it because the advantages of being part of the largest trading bloc and free trade bloc in the world considerably outweigh any of the possible disadvantages. And because, given our geographical position and our culture, we are going to be dominated by the European Union, whether we are members of it or not. So we might as well have a say in what it decides. What we have done is, in fact, not to take back control. We have surrendered control over an organization that will have considerable influence over our future indefinitely and of which we are no longer part. That was not a sensible thing to do. But it's done and, well, presumably it can't be undone. It's not going to be undone. That's perfectly true. Although I suspect that over the years, we will forge ad hoc agreements with the European Union, which will recover some of the advantages, possibly at a certain cost, of membership. I suspect that we will end up by entering the customs union, possibly not in theory, but by a more complicated and less transparent process, which adds up to the same thing. I think that we will eventually reach deals with the European Union under which we do contribute to their costs and accept certain of their standards, notably in relation to goods crossing frontiers, which it seems to me will be very much in our interest. That isn't going to happen under the current government because ever since the referendum of 2016, 
Brexit, whether you're for it or against it, has been the defining meter in British politics. And it has been essential qualification for membership of the British cabinet that you should have been a Brexiter. That has produced a narrowness of focus, which has impacted on many other areas of policies we're seeing at the moment, and is certain to prevent us from reaching an accommodation with the European Union while this government remains in power. Because the Labour Party is also divided on the subject, it's a no-go area for the current leadership of the Labour Party. And so, ostensibly, they are taking the same line as the government in practice they are unlikely to be as rigid or as zealous in their anti-Europeanism once they're elected, as I suspect they will be, as the present government. And I suspect that things will therefore improve to some extent. Do you think that David Cameron's decision to have a referendum on Brexit was a mistake? I mean, I know you've spoken and written a lot about that as a challenge to British constitution, that making a major decision like that was certainly not the convention. Australia has lots of referendum. Well, we've had 44, only eight have succeeded. But we've had referendum on issues too. So on the conscription issue in the World War Two, we had two referendum on that issue. They both failed. They generally fail in Australia. It's quite hard. You need a majority of states and a majority of people and that double approval makes it almost impossible, but still possible to pass. A referendum in Britain is Referendas, very Referenda in Britain are rarer. Yeah. And I have no problem with referenda in principle. A great deal, however, depends on the kind of issue you're trying to decide. There were a number of problems about the UK referendum on Europe. One was that it couldn't possibly be decisive because the terms on which we left the European Union, if we did, would have to be negotiated after the referendum. So nobody knew at the time of the referendum exactly what sort of consequences withdrawal would have. They were therefore obliged to vote more or less blind in Many European countries, it's a condition under the constitution of a referendum that there has to be a draft law, i.e. Parliament has to approve a law subject to it being ratified by a referendum, so that that way you know precisely what changes of the law you are going to have if a majority says yes. That wasn't ever open to the UK in relation to Europe because of the process of negotiation that would have to follow. I think the second thing that was wrong with the referendum is that a referendum is essentially a method of circumventing a parliamentary process. It is undesirably and unnecessarily absolute. Essentially, it enables, in this case, 52% of the population who decided that they wanted to leave to call the shots, and the 48% were reduced to insignificance. Now, that has a serious problem because the essence of the parliamentary process is to arrive at a solution which represents some extent of compromise. Mm. It was important for us in 2016 to arrive at an accommodation between the leavers and the remainers. That would have involved the leavers getting less than they wanted, but the remainers getting more than nothing. That, I think, would have avoided the current fragmentation of our politics by reference to this issue which I think would have been a good thing, both because it would have avoided the really serious divisions between our citizens, which still subsist, 
and because it would probably have resulted in an agreement with the European Union, which was a great deal more beneficial to us economically than anything that we've got at the moment. But the effect of the referendum was to rule out compromise by putting in power a group of people who would never otherwise have got power and who were, frankly, fanatics on this issue. That has done us a great deal of damage. And now, it is fair to say that we would not have left the European Union in 2020 as we did if we had had that system because both parties in Parliament were dominated by people who thought that it was crazy to leave the European Union. That would not necessarily have remained the case because sooner or later a powerful anti-European movement would have obtained a foothold in Parliament, would have taken over one of the parties, probably the Conservative Party, if the enthusiasm had continued. But there would have been factors going the other way, one of which is that those under 40, in fact under 50, were almost, were by a very large majority in favour of staying. The young, almost unanimously so, they were big beneficiaries of the European Union and anyway much more internationally minded than their parents and grandparents. So sooner or later, the electorate would, I think, have gone the other way and become more pro-European. Now, I don't know which of those tendencies would have won out or when, but it would have been a much more uncertain process. You talk about the fragmentation of politics in the UK, and it's something we've seen across the West, of course. The fragmentation in the United States is quite extraordinary Republicans and Democrats. There's just no room in the middle for anyone to cede any ground. And of course, the Trump administration and sort of demise of that in the end, a pretty, pretty dark day for democracy. In your BBC Wreath lectures in 2019, you talked about the decline of democracy and that when it ends, or we wouldn't even realise it was happening, that young people, when polled, don't even seem to favour democracy over other sorts of system. What makes modern democracy work and how vulnerable do you think it is at this moment? Are you optimistic, pessimistic, something in the middle? (laughs) I'm not optimistic. I'm a natural optimist, but I find it hard to be optimistic about Mm. this. I think that the great enemies of democracy are economic misfortune, fear and intolerance. Economic misfortune, because democracies have always depended on the prospect of things improving as each generation passes, something which we can no longer be as confident of as we were a generation ago, at any rate, in the West. Mm. And the reason why young people feel that more is that they are facing problems posed by the lack of growth, but can see their parents' and grandparents' generations still enjoying the fruits of the better times that existed when they were at the prime of their earning power. Fear, I think that experience has shown, and the pandemic is an example of this, that people can be frightened into surrendering a huge amount of liberty and a huge amount of democracy if they are persuaded that the state in somebody's hands can protect them from it. That's very often an illusion, but it's a powerful illusion, influences people. And intolerance, well, you introduced this subject by pointing to the most extreme case of political intolerance, which is the polarization of politics in the United States. I can't speak for the position in Australia where my impression is that things are a great deal better. But they're not that much better in the UK, essentially because, unlike Australia, we have a first-past-the-post system for parliamentary elections. The effect of that is to freeze out any but the two major parties. 
What this means is that the only way that the fringes and extremes can get a voice in Parliament is to take over and colonise one of the major political parties. And this has happened to both the Conservative and the Labour Party in the UK. The Labour Party was taken over over a period of some years, between 2010 and 2019, by an extreme left-wing group called Momentum, which was basically responsible for the election of their most disastrous leader ever, namely Jeremy Corbyn, whose policies were decisively rejected. I mean, he essentially won the election of December 2019 for the Conservatives. Keir Starmer, the current leader of the Labour Party, has done a very substantial job in drawing the Labour Party back from the brink and making it seriously electable, although his future very much depends on his delivering a victory at the next general election. We shall have to see whether that happens. But the Conservative process has been more important because the Conservatives have been in power since 2010. The Conservatives have essentially been taken over by what was once an anti-European fringe of the Conservative Party. And the result has been that for a time, both parties were dominated by their own extremes. The current cabinet consists entirely of the anti-European pro-Liz Truss wing of the Conservative Party. The current Prime Minister has been imposed on Conservative MPs by the membership, which is almost by definition more extreme than the majority of Conservative voters, because essentially the membership consists of activists, people who can give up evening after evening in politicking in their local party associations, and they have no one to consider when they think about who should be leading them other than themselves. They therefore want somebody as close to themselves as possible. They don't represent anybody other than themselves. Whereas MPs, who in Australia would be making the choice of leader, are people whose main concern is to get re-elected and who therefore have to think about the impact that the choice of leader is going to have on the electorate as a whole and not merely the tiny proportion of the electorate that happens to be paid up members of a political party. That's a very big and important difference, and it's a difference which has completely kiboshed the political process in the United Kingdom. The Labour Party is in the process of recovering from that process in their own ranks. I fear that the Conservative Party is not going to recover from it until they suffer a very serious electoral defeat at a general election and have a period of five or ten years to reflect on their future in opposition. Well, I guess such is the cycle of politics, isn't it? But I guess the declining membership of political parties drives those extremes even further, doesn't it? Yes, it it makes it much easier for tactical entryists to take a party over. Of course. I wanted to finish our discussion today, Jonathan, by going back to your roots, to history. You started your career as a historian, not a lawyer. How has coming to the law and, of course, then the bench after a career at the bar, how has that informed your views on the law as a historian? Well, a great deal, because history is an enormous fund of vicarious experience. People often say about judges, about legislators, about lawyers generally, that they live in an ivory tower, that they have a narrow experience of life. That is true, but it's also true of the entire population. The truth is that ordinary life is far too varied for any individual to have experience of it. We are all prisoners of our own experience, and our own experience is always relatively limited. If my experience is limited to being an academic historian, a barrister, and then a judge, 
that is no worse and in some respects rather better than somebody whose experience is limited to being a teacher, a bus driver, a plumber, or anything else. We all have limited experience. We all need vicarious experience in order to make good ignorance of life. And history is one of a number of ways in which we can make good that gap experience. And it's extremely important. It's not the only source. We judges and legislators, other decision makers, need a great deal of empathy for the lives of people which are very different from their own lives. I refuse to accept that this is impossible to attain. You need to be a reasonably diligent observer of the world, and it certainly helps to have been a reasonably diligent observer of the world as it was before you were born. Humanity does not change quite as much as we think it does. The basic dilemmas of humanity have been very similar through the ages. What has changed is the technical and administrative ability of humanity to do things. But the instincts that lie behind their choice of what to do, that has not changed that radically. Here we're in a university campus where there are often protests and controversies like campuses around the world and of course cancel culture is a feature of that in modern day although cancel culture is not totally new. We've had events here at the Robert Menzies Institute that have discussed ideas, uh, issues such as conscription where people were censored and told they couldn't have certain views they were inappropriate given the state of war at the time. What are the negative consequences of a cancellation of history or certain topics or certain figures of history that we have to apologise for what was done in the past just because we might have been related or sort of some sort of inherit of certain figures of history? This seems to me to talk about the importance of history being a source of vicarious <laughs> experience. It seems to be a way of removing those insights, doesn't well, it? Well, in the minds of some people... It's not only a source of vicarious experience, it's a source of vicarious entitlement and vicarious guilt. There is a view, which in my view is nonsense, that the responsibility, guilt if you like, for example slavery, is heritable. The current occupants of the United Kingdom are said to be responsible in some way for the deeds of their ancestors. Now, there are historical problems about that. Britain was one of the very first countries to abolish slavery and to abolish the slave trade, and in the 19th century, was foremost in the actual forcible suppression of the slave trade. The Royal Navy's West Africa Spot Squadron was entirely concerned with that. So it's historically wrong anyway. But the whole notion of inherited and collective guilt is one that I find morally repellent. It doesn't matter how immoral slavery was, and I accept that it could not be more immoral, but its immorality is irrelevant to a generation that hasn't done it. I am not responsible for the slavery which my ancestors in the 18th century either favoured or declined to do anything about. I am proud of the fact that my ancestors, um, I'm talking about Britain generally, were responsible for the suppression of the slave trade in the 19th century. But I can't claim any personal credit for that for exactly the same reason. I think that we have to accept the past for what it is. We have to learn lessons from it. But the business of apportioning guilt on the basis of historical facts is a logical and moral absurdity. Well, thank you, Jonathan Sumption, for all those thoughts you've shared with us today on Afternoon Light. I've thoroughly enjoyed our discussion and look forward to many more over the next few days. 
The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.